Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that still loves, after all of these years, after decades, still loves Gem and the Holograms. And actually, I was about to say, wow, I'd really like to rewatch that series. I should track it down. But you know what? I don't want to ruin it. I want to live with my perception that Gem and the Holograms was the perfect blend of pathos, of well-written characters, of keen fashion sense, and great music. So I'm not going to ruin that. <laughs> Let me live with that dream, the idealized version of Gem and the Holograms, which I consider one of the best cartoons of my childhood. Let me let me hold on to that. Don't ruin it for me. Don't tell me otherwise. I'm sure I'd only need to watch one episode to get myself into some sort of mixture of rage and disappointment. So don't. Don't tell me. Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 149. In today's episode, our friend and fellow Delia's fangirl, Jess Todd, is back. And today is part one of our two-part conversation about the toy crazes of the 80s and 90s and how they fueled fights, department store riots, and lots and lots of frantic holiday weekends for parents. In this episode, we'll specifically dig into the ways in which children of the 80s and 90s were set up to just be perfect consumers as adults via a mixture of lots of advertising and cartoons that were really just long-form commercials. As you may have guessed, like all things that back to the rise of consumerism, of prioritizing profits over people, Somehow, it's all Ronald Reagan's fault. It always is. It always comes back to Ronald Reagan. These last two episodes will be the final episodes of 2022, as I'll be taking a break for a few weeks. Don't worry. I'm talking like two weeks to go to Japan and just generally give my brain a break. I have a lot of things to think about. I got a lot of things to see. I just need to rest a little bit. You know I won't rest, but you know what I mean. I'll still be on social media, but I'll be looking at other things than spreadsheets and hopefully my computer. A little bit less time with my computer. I have to say these two episodes are a great way to end the year. I was laughing my butt off while I was editing these episodes. And at the same time, it made me think a lot about all of the shit we have to untangle in our brains if we want to break away from the false promises of overconsumption and so-called retail therapy. I mean, we have a lot of work to do. And actually, all of this comes at a good time when I have a few weeks to really think about that and get more inspired for doing the work next year of untangling all of that. And I hope you'll start thinking about that too. This can be a big project for us in 2023. Before we jump into my conversation with Jess, you probably guessed it. We have two audio essays from small business owners in our community. First, we'll hear from Patricia of The World's Corner, followed by Rachel of Cute Little Ruins. So let's take a listen. Hi there, my name is Patricia Churio, and I'm the founder of The World's Corner. We are a fair trade shop that offers products that are handcrafted by women artisans around the world. All of our products are made with natural and ethically sourced materials and dyes, and we give a percentage back to the artisans so that they can continue their entrepreneurial journey. What motivated me to start The World's Corner was when I was living in Southeast Asia, I saw firsthand the effects of 
in the negative impact of fast fashion in that region. I realized also that a lot of the vendors at local markets have to buy things that are already made at factories or mass produced in order to sell them for cheap prices because a lot of tourists would not buy things that are expensive or what the actual products are worth. And so I wanted to create a platform where I could combine the things that I love and that I appreciate and, and really share those stories of the artisans, share the story behind the product and also highlight the connection of the artisans with nature and how they work and to make the products that we use and that we purchase. I think for me, it's important to do this because we have so much to learn from artisans. We have so much to learn from their connection, their storytelling, and how they utilize textiles and, and nature to create these beautiful products and beautiful items. And I think we have to learn from them and continue to appreciate them, but also elevate and amplify these techniques because they're the only way that we can get ourselves out of this problem that we have created with overconsumption and, and, and fast fashion. Throughout you know the last five years since I started this project, I've lived in different cities and share the stories of the artisans that I work with and, and share our mission and our passion with so many people. And I think one of the things that I've learned and that I, I really appreciate is that people are so willing to buy and to invest in a product when they know that there's a story behind it and that there's so much more than just a simple product. And I think that that connection, it's it's so important. And, and I've learned that people do want to learn and they do want to take the time to to educate themselves and appreciate more the the process of, of fashion and, and production. And I think we just have to take the time to to share those stories and really find spaces where where we can share them and and create that community that appreciates them. You can find the World's Corner online. We have a lot of our products there at theworldscorner.com and also on Instagram where we share events and highlights of our artisans and their process and what goes into making their products at Shop the World's Corner on Instagram. <laughs> Rachel Raskin Grandstaff, and I own and operate Cute Little Ruin Vintage located in Dallas, Texas. I carry antique to Y2K clothing, home items, and vinyl. My small business came into being much in the same way other clothes horse community members have recounted their own origin story. I left a 12-year teaching career in the fall of 2020 after a nightmare spring teaching virtually and taking care of an infant full-time. Come summer, my district mandated returning to the classroom, but gave only vague assurance of basic safety measures like, wee, here's a single cloth mask with the district logo on it. 
and they were pretty hostile when I asked what I thought were benign questions about these kinds of things. Ridiculously, I was still considering going back. I missed my students, who were mostly seniors in high school, and I was ready to at least go back to that part of the job, the part I really loved the most. Then I called HR, asking about a possible short-term sabbatical or part-time virtual teaching, at least until vaccines were available. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but uh, the woman on the phone basically insinuated that I would need permission from my principal if I wanted to resign at all. And I didn't rage at her, but inside I was fuming. The top of my head literally felt hot. And I knew that was it. I was fucking done. Done with working 60 hours a week and being guilted into doing more. Done with being micromanaged by people that didn't have half the experience or skill I brought to the classroom. So... Thinking about this topic led me to consider my long, strange resume that does have a singular theme. Small businesses tended to treat myself and other employees like humans. Larger entities tended not to. I've often heard the same argument, usually parroted by students uh, when I taught macroeconomics uh, from things they'd heard in the media and elsewhere repeated over and over that a good reason for turning a blind eye to bad treatment from large corporations was because the capital E economy needs the jobs they create. But if people are treated as if they're disposable or not paid enough to get by or barely get by, what value do these jobs really hold for society at large? So here are some examples from this checkered resume I have. When I was a freshman in high school, I begged the couple that ran the vintage shop, which is so cool in the mid to late 90s, central Wisconsin small town I grew up in, and begged them to let me help out there. They took me under their wing and I not only learned about the ins and outs of clothing, I learned how to run an ethical business that excelled based on excellent customer service and the kind in the sense that everyone's helpful and knowledgeable, not the demeaning, let people walk all over you nonsense. They knew I needed to work other jobs when I got a little older and always let me work around those on top of school and extracurriculars. They were my cheerleaders and a second set of parents sometimes. If anybody knows Heather and Sean Van Dolfsen in Wausau, Wisconsin, Make sure you tell them they are amazing people and buy them around Alinees. I've had the same experience whenever I worked for a small or smallish business, and there's been more. Family-owned scissor manufacturer that I worked third shift for two summers between first and second year of college. They let me leave abruptly for a couple of weeks when I got an incredible offer to coach at a debate camp at UCLA. And they let me come back to finish out the summer to earn as much as I needed for school the next year. The small single location thrift store I worked for during the summer when I began my teaching career in New York was full of welcoming, kind, creative people that gave me a home in a city that was exciting, but often very lonely. 
My husband's business, which is smallish, less than 50 employees, operates similarly. If an employee needs to tend to a medical or family concern, they can leave, no questions asked, except to see if they can help ease the burden in any way. Contrast, I worked as a sales part person for a large, fancy, at least to me, department store for a couple of years. Let's call it Blorgstrom. When I started, I felt like I oozed sophistication by proxy and worked 10, 12-hour days standing and running in heels happily because I thought surely with a little moxie and hard work, I could learn the ropes and move up in the company. I did get promoted pretty quickly to a low-level management position at a new location. And the first day I was supposed to work at my new job was the same day a bonker storm coated Dallas in ice and snow. I white-knuckled it in my 99 cutlass and made it in anyways. And the store manager's only comment was regarding how disappointed she was that I wasn't wearing more makeup. My small business, Cute Little Ruin Vintage, started as a de-stashing project and summer hobby when I went back to teaching shortly after the makeup incident. And then something to give me a sense of self at when I unexpectedly became a stay-at-home parent. Now I hope to build it into something that can impact and uplift others the way these small businesses did for me. Whether that is through donating portions of sales, volunteering in the community where my storefront and studio are located, or I hope eventually being able to hire folks and pay them living wages and treat them with the dignity they deserve. Small business, at least to me, is less of a term denoting physical size than it is an outlook and a reason for being. Thank you so much to Patricia and Rachel for taking the time to put together their essays. I'll share all of their contact info in the show notes. So please give both of them a follow on Instagram and check out their businesses. Next week's episode will include our final two audio essays of the year. And I couldn't be happier with how they have all come together. I'm still thinking through like the next round of audio essays, which will not be about small business. And hopefully I'll have more info for you in our first episode of 2023. I have a few ideas. I think they're going to go back to this idea of like untangling all the consumerism that's just pounded in there since we were little. The whole point of this showcase of audio essays was to demonstrate the importance of small businesses, to put a human face to them, to show how they are different from, say, Amazon or anthropology. As Rachel said in her audio essay, small business is less of a term denoting physical size than it is an outlook and a reason for being. That's how I feel about it too. If you've been listening to the podcast long enough, then you have heard a lot of my stories from my career and how my employers tended to treat all of us as disposable, easily replaced in a second by someone else who needed a job, just bodies in a chair. The number of times I have been told there are 200 other girls out there who would kill to have your job or you have somebody else's dream job, so suck it up. Wow, that's really how it goes. And I'll just say, like, nothing says, hey, you're valueless to us than letting someone go during a global pandemic and cutting off their health insurance a few days later. It was terrifying for me. And I know, 
I can see, this is how hindsight always is, that 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 happening to me was really what lit the fire under me to work hard on Close Horse, to bring all of these topics, these stories to more people. And all of the preaching I do about small business and its importance in the future, it is motivated, it is driven by all of the bad experiences I had working for these large companies throughout my career because I see the humanity within small business. Every time I post about small business on Instagram, at least one person shows up to say, wow, I worked for a small business owner and it was terrible. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So have I. Ask me about the really fucked up vintage store I worked for one summer in Chicago. It was horrible. It was abusive. We were rarely paid on time, which is terrible when you can barely pay your rent in the first place. The owner was a sexually harassing creep. He would lock us in the store because he didn't trust us to work, I guess. He was yelling. He was cruel. He was terrible. The reality is that there are unsavory people in every area of our lives. Not every small business is owned by a saint. Some owners are terrible bosses. They sell a bad product or they just don't care about their communities and their employees. If they are bad, then you should skip them. In fact, Tell others in your community why these businesses are bad so others skip them too. Let's direct our money to the businesses we love. This is a place where we can have significant and relatively fast impact. You know, it's going to take a lot, a lot to dismantle fast fashion or Amazon or what have you, but it almost takes so little to boost up great small businesses in our community and make them a better option for customers and employees alike. Even if you don't have a lot of money, you can support them by writing reviews, recommending them to other customers, sharing their content on social media. I mean, this is a place where you can have some pretty significant impact and in a timely way. It's really, really valuable. Overall, Even the worst small businesses out there, even that terrible vintage store I worked for in Chicago, have significantly smaller impact from a negative perspective than the big bad guys like Amazon or some of my past employers. And the fact is, regardless of some of these jerks out there running small businesses, most small businesses are run by people you know, and they're just trying to make a living while doing the best job they can, however imperfect they may be. Small business is all about community and people. If a business is an active, positive part of their community, they'll be supported by the people around them. Their communities view them as people rather than these big corporate monoliths. Their community has a personal stake in the well-being of the people running in that business and working in that business, right? No one looks at, say, Ikea and says, I sure am glad I support Ikea and their family. No, what? No. If a small business is good to its employees, if it views them as people, if it treats them like people, and this is all part of being a good community member because their employees are a part of their community too. If they're being good to the people around them, then their employees spread the good word and then they get more support. It's a great... It's a great circle there, right? 
Ironically, back at my horrible fast fashion retail job, where we were all treated like potential criminals from the moment we walked in the door, we were told in our interviewing and hiring training that all employees and applicants were also customers, so we should make sure they had a good experience, both throughout the selection process and while they were working for us. Well, I'm not really sure that that worked out (laughs) Um, at all. In fact, everyone I know who has ever worked for that company leaves feeling really burned out, really resentful, and few ever shop there again. That raises the question, like, is this a function of the size of these businesses? Could a chain of 200 stores be a part of their local communities? I think they could. I think it's not just the size in this situation. It's more about how they view the humans that drive their profits. I think when you burn and churn employees, when they are just a person running a cash register, another person who just unpacks boxes or does this or does that, but they're not actual humans, they're just a means to an end, a way of getting work done and bringing more money in. When you have that approach, and you burn and churn employees, you just alienate yourself from the communities of those customers, which ostensibly would be the community around your business, right? And I'm not saying that my employer or a lot of these other big companies care about their standing in the community because I don't think they do. I think they are chasing other priorities like profit, margins, stock prices, revenue targets, Those are the priorities. I don't think they're considering their impact on their areas and the people around their stores, much less their impact on the world or the humans, all those humans that really fuel their profits. It's one more reason to shop small whenever possible. It's it's not just the local impact. It's not just the environmental impact, although both of these are very important. It's the human impact on the owners themselves, their employees, their neighbors, and even their customers. Shopping small is all about people. It's about seeing people as people and not just a means to an end, whether that's running a cash register, making clothes, or even being the customer buying the clothes. It's all about community. It's about human connection and collaboration. And when you lose sight of that, you lose sight of all of the things that matter. You lose sight of the rights of workers. You lose sight of the fact that those workers are humans first and workers second. When you lose sight of all of that, you forget about the impact of what you do on the planet. You lose own sense of humanity. We got to bring it back. We got to have the collaboration and the human connection. And that's what you get with a good small business. Tell me the last time you got that at, I don't know, Blorgstrom. (laughs) Thanks for that, Rachel, by the way. Thank you again to Patricia and Rachel. Um, It's not easy to put these audio essays together, but you sure do make it look easy. (laughs) So thank you so much for your hard work. Now, we're going to transition into my conversation with Jess, which will hopefully fill you with a really great mixture of nostalgia and, you know, fury. All right, let's go.
All right, Jess, you are now a regular here. You took the world by storm with all of your stories about catalogs, but you want to remind everyone of who you are. Hello. I'm so happy to be here again. My name is Jess Todd. I am a content creator, a social media manager, and mom, and um, a perpetual uh, Peter Pan syndrome. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that. For for which there is no cure. It's true. It's true. Yeah, I'm glad. You know what? Hearing that about you makes me feel better about myself because I'm in the same boat, you know? I know that. I know that to be true. Yes. Yes, totally. So today we're going to talk about toys and we're going to talk about toy trends and we're going to talk about how they all relate to sort of our our introduction to consumerism as children. Uh, so yes. it'll be mostly fun, but there'll be some like things in there that are going to make you want to go out and kick something. Yes. Because uh, I definitely was getting like really <laughs> upset when I was doing some of this research. And then others, I was like, oh, what a good time. So it's a mixed bag. Yes, it sure is. I yes. thought we could start because you and I are toy aficionados, right? Mm. Yes, certified amateur toy experts <laughs> at this point. At this point, I think so. Like we could be like, I don't know. I don't know how you make a living off of being an expert on toy. We could be like guests on like shows on the D- learning channel or something. I have yeah. no idea. I mean, I think I'll make a PR packet. We will get moving. But if anybody <laughs> can do it, it's the two of us. So. It's the two of us for sure. Yeah. We have the charisma. We have the passion. Um, check. Check and check. So I'm going to ask you a question that as soon as I thought of it, I was like, this is not a question that is an easy for me. I would really struggle on this one. What would you say was your favorite toy when you were a kid? So to those listening, she literally asked me this, like, as the countdown was going to record. <laughs> yeah, totally. So- I was like, you know, don't don't dwell on it. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. But hey, big question. Go. Um, well, there's a lot. But I mean, it, per- pertaining to this issue, to, to this episode, I'm going to say, issue? <laughs> I'm sorry, this is somebody that worked in media, this issue, volume 12, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think that the number one that came up with me in conversations with you was Cricket Doll. Oh, yeah. You had a lot of feelings there. Oh, my God. I think, like, I had a lot of toys that were very beloved. I was a really big doll person. We Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, American Girl all the time. Um, But the number one was Cricket, the Cricket doll, which, like, like, a lot of people don't remember Cricket. I'm like, how do you not remember Cricket? Cricket came out in 1987, and it was this giant talking doll, and you'd put a tape in her mouth, and she'd tell you a story and talk to you, (laughs) and her, her eyes would move back and forth and her mouth would move like literally move and you know this is not a big deal like nowadays but like at the time it was like very new technology which we will talk about later oh yeah (laughs) but um she was amazing and you could buy a dress and a tape kit and you could have her tell different stories and you could dress her in different outfits and it was like this giant doll she was gigantic she was probably I mean I was a kid so I'm sure if I saw her now I'd be like it's not that big but maybe like almost like two and a half three feet tall that's a big doll. Right. Big and doll, so yeah. I loved Cricket and I um, put her in the tub and oh, <laughs> that, no. she no longer worked. So I asked for another one for Christmas and I got it. My parents gave it to me, not Santa, my parents. And I found out maybe like last year that it was my best friend's growing up. She didn't want hers. Mom's like, hey, you like that doll? She's like, no, nah, I don't play with that doll. So I literally got my best friend's cricket doll for my replacement cricket. I mean, I love that. It's, it, <laughs> yeah. I love that, right? Uh, yeah. It's like re-gifting. Right. 
she was like a big, it was like a boom box that had a doll surrounding oh, it. You know, totally. it was like a boom box stuffed inside a doll skin, <laughs> you know? And she had this, like, she had a bunch of like catchphrases, but the one that I remember most was at the end, she'd all, she's always be, she'd always be like, I'll be talking to you like that. Like the stuff of nightmares by the time I was like, <laughs> this is great. She will be talking to me. And then I find out that she had a brother doll what? and a sister doll that were on the market that didn't like make it they, the sister doll was supposed to be for like older kids uh, and of course the brother doll was for like the boy market and I don't mm-hmm. think either of them ever took off I mean something that I noticed as I was researching some of the t- specific toys we're going to talk about uh is that you know and this is how buying works too right like you bring in like a pair of gaucho pants and if they're good then you're like okay what how can we iterate on this right that make them Absolutely. long make them shorter make them different colors that kind of thing mm-hmm. with toys i definitely saw this with the big toys that they were like okay how do we get even more people to buy this toy like right. we got to make one for our boys we got to make one for your parents <laughs> like it was yeah it was so interesting and all, like and all these toys are so interrelated too i never realized that because just like what you're saying like uh, one of the toys we're going to talk about, actually, Cricket was made on the heels of that toy mm-hmm. and was also kind of a part of its demise. Uh, that toy was, you know, Cricket was like a, among other toys that were a part of its demise. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. So today when we talk about toys, we are going to be talking about a lot, something you said, Jess, just like reminded me to say this, you know, um, while we might not view gender as a binary Unfortunately, that's how the toy industry has viewed children for a really long time and probably still does. So we're going to definitely be talking about girls' toys versus boys' toys and the boy version of the girl toy and the girl version of the boy toy a lot because that is just how this industry has worked. Um, I know that stores like Target have worked to ungender their toy department, but I would still say I, I feel it when I walk through there. Like, oh, yes. The, right. Um, and yeah, it's the pink aisle and the right. other aisle. <laughs> and so while you listening to this and Jess and I for sure feel like the kids should play with any toy that makes them happy and, for you sure. know, inspires their creativity. Uh, there are still a lot of people out there who would really be upset about a boy playing with a Barbie. Real talk. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, or dressing in a dress up princess outfit. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Um, and, you know, that's what that toy industry kind of has to walk that line because otherwise mm-hmm. they lose a lot of customers. Yeah. Okay. So today we're specifically, we're talking a lot about top holiday toys, meaning like the hot toy of the year um, in certain years. And we're not talking about every year. We're going to talk about some big ones specifically, which have all have like really interesting and dramatic stories attached to them. Which I thought was amazing when you and I were preparing which, for this. Did, did we know? Like, I don't think there was anything that could prepare us. For no, this. some of the stuff I found, I was like, "Oh, I didn't didn't see that coming." Mm. Um, so I wanted to start by just talking about some of the hot holiday toys of like much further in the past, because a lot of these toys actually are kind of like evergreen toys, I would say at this point, and we're part mm-hmm. of our childhoods and our parents' childhoods and maybe even our grandparents' childhoods. Another thing that I noticed as I was working on this, and I know you saw too, is that we saw toy technology developing alongside like regular technology. Yes. And you see that with with toys as well. Okay, not with the first one I'm going to talk about, but some of the other ones here. Um, The hot toy of 1920 was the Raggedy Ann doll. It had an average retail price of $1. And I was surprised to learn, I had no idea about this, that Raggedy Ann was created by a political cartoonist named Johnny Gruel. And Raggedy Ann was originally a book character. Two books were actually sold alongside 
the doll. Um, I actually mm. would have thought Raggedy Ann was from like the 1800s. <laughs> I, I would too. Right? Well, and I would, and like having known nothing about it, and it, she's such a part of our conversation, like still. Yeah. I feel like totally. Well, no, maybe it's not, not as much like in the 80s. I think she had a big resurgence because literally me and my sister were Raggedy Ann for Halloween. Yes. You know, in different years. I think there was a resurgence <laughs> in the 80s. There must have been. There, there must have been because yeah, there, there were cost- costumes and like I remember having stickers and things like yeah. that. So yeah, I think so too. So she was the, the she was big big in the 1920s in the 20s said. yeah okay. yeah she was like kind of the makes toy sense, yeah i get it i would have thought like you know because she's made of fabric and looks handmade and it's like a doll that's quiet and children were not expected to make any noise <laughs> you know so like you know yeah i don't know maybe that you know and there wasn't there weren't that many options either so, no totally yeah. not so 1921 was the debut of Lincoln Logs. That was the hot toy that year. They cost about 50 cents to a dollar. And here's here's the fun fact here. They were invented by Frank Lloyd Wright's son, John wow. Lloyd Wright. I never knew that. That's amazing. I know. Still a hot toy in my heart. Yeah, me too. I used to love those when I was a kid. Um, 1939, we're moving forward here, saw the rise of the Viewmaster. You know, like the red thing and you like click it. You look into it and you click it and it takes you on a reel of still images. Totally had them when I was a kid. It was $2 back then. Um, This was some really hot technology because it involved creating 3D photos by, like, superimposing images. Um, That was, like, technology that didn't exist before. And I found this quote in an article about Viewmaster that I thought was fascinating. When America entered World War II a few years later, the U.S. government purchased millions of special Viewmaster reels and Viewmasters and used them to train servicemen on how to spot planes and boats within shooting range. Because this is like the latest technology. I know, I know, I want to see it. I know, I was going to say, and like, even though like $2, that's like pretty steep in 1939. Like, wonder what that is adjusted. I know. know, Well, when you get to 1963, it's the Easy Bake Oven. Which was fifteen dollars, and I I was like, that seems like a lot for nineteen sixty three. And I looked it up; that would be one hundred and fifty dollars in today's money. Wow! Yeah, interesting because they sell them now for like thirty bucks. I know, I know, right? <laughs> you know? All of these toys definitely hit a ceiling, right? There uh-huh. are other hot toys over the years are all going to sound super familiar to everyone: Slinky, Etch a Sketch, Tinker Toys, Barbie, Play Doh. Twister, Magic 8-Ball, Light Bright, Monopoly, Uno, Shrinky Dinks, Pet Rock, My Little Pony, Trolls, Atari, and even Nerf Balls. I love that Pet Rock is just like in there. <laughs> <laughs> it was a hot toy. It was a hot I toy. Um, and like In the 70s, right? In the, yeah, yeah, in the 70s, right? <laughs> Many of these toys, except for maybe Pet Rock, feel very yeah. evergreen to me because generations have enjoyed them. I certainly have played with all of these at some point in my life. Um mm-hmm. But when we get to the 80s and the 90s, which is mostly what we're going to be talking about today, the toys then, I would say only some of them had staying power. The hot toys. Yes, Yes, for sure. And then they kind of faded away and like they've been, there's been numerous attempts to like bring them back out or update them and it just, it just hasn't worked. Whereas Mm -hmm. these other toys are still around. Um, So today we're going to try to get to the heart of why did some of these hot toys of the 80s and 90s get so much hype, lead to, some of them literally led to rioting. People got assaulted. <laughs> like, injuries <laughs> happened. And then they, they, kind sure of, they kind of disappeared, right? And when when you and I started talking about this, we were like, 
Why was it so extreme? Because I'm going to tell you, I did not find any stories of Lincoln Logs riots. <laughs> no one got their pants ripped off over a Viewmaster. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. But like uh-huh. the toys of the 80s and 90s, shit got wild. Yeah, for sure. I had this, like, I don't know, like, light bulb moment a couple months ago when I was talking to my friend Kim. And we were talking about sticker collections when we were kids. Like, I remember a, a period of like two years in elementary school where stickers were like a craze. Oh yeah. Right. But let me ask you, were you, you, you had a sticker book, I assume, right? Obvi. Yes. As did I. Were you a sticker that you took off of the page and oh, put no. into your sticker book? Oh, you were the sticker page in the book. Yes. Under the, <laughs> yep. under the cellophane. I had a photo protected. album that I used. Yes. Yes. Um, and yeah. Are we, so you would stick the sticker. I was to a the sticker, t- sticker onto the page sticker person, which was very, very frowned upon in the sticker book. <laughs> Very stressful, very stressful. But she said something to me that like, I was like, oh my God, it's all coming together for me where she said, you know, sticker stickers, the sticker craze taught us to become hoarders and collectors and consumers at a really young age. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. Like the craze over it for sure. And like, I, all of a sudden, like there would be like a, a store at the mall that only sold stickers, right? Mm -hmm. We went to the farmer's market, I remember like regularly with my grandma and there was suddenly there was a booth there selling stickers, Mm -hmm. you know? And like every toy store had a sticker section. You could like get stickers in the mail. Right, at the grocery store. There was a sticker in the mail club you could Mm -hmm. be a part of. And they were not super expensive. So like you could, I got a dollar a week for allowance and you could like totally use your dollar and get tons of stickers. Exactly, exactly. You could get them from like the the school book club. You could get Mm -hmm. them, I mean, Hallmark, I will say, I've been looking at a lot of like vintage stickers for the past few weeks and Hallmark really have the best stickers in case anybody's wondering. Treat yourself by Googling like 80s Hallmark stickers because you'll be like, oh my God, I remember that. Yeah. Um, But anyway, it started to make me think like, yeah, we were really hardwired to love stuff and love shopping Mm -hmm. really young and then it was like oh yeah let's talk about the saturday morning cartoons and also the cartoons that were on before and after school basically Mm -hmm. a means of selling us cereal candy gushers toys my brother would like watch cartoons on saturday morning and periodically leave the room to just go tell my mom that he's seen something that he wanted like all day (laughs) yeah and you and i were talking about like some of those commercials are so like i don't know they're so iconic they're so drilled into our brains like the my buddy song who can't sing the my buddy song right you're you're singing it in your head right now right exactly yeah. and don't forget about kid sister the second verse right kid sister kid sister my yeah. brother was definitely not the kind of kid who played with dolls like he was like into like he was really into like heavy machinery and cars and things that could go outside and play in the yard like that kind of stuff yeah so he had a lot of energy to mm-hmm. put out there in the world and yet he wanted a my buddy because he saw it on TV a thousand times every Saturday. So my mom got him one for Christmas. This is like all he wanted, right? And my buddy was another one of those dolls that was pretty big. Like, I think about three feet tall, right? I think that that cricket might have been like inspired by that. Or one one was inspired by the other because they like Kid Sister (laughs) and Cricket are like, they're they're the same. I believe it. (laughs) I mean, I'm picturing them in my mind and they have a very similar look. Oh, yeah. As an understatement. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that kid sister didn't talk and, you know, 
have clothes that you could buy, I don't think. <laughs> I think that my buddy was one of those things that, like, we all remember because of the song. But, like, mm-hmm. I do not think that was a toy with longevity at all. I bet it was, like, one season. And then it was, it was like, over. Because I don't even see them when I'm out, like, at, like, vintage stores and stuff. Like, they just no. came and went. So my brother gets yeah. this My Buddy for Christmas. And the same year I got a Fisher Price my first camera which I was very stoked on I was like finally I'm I'm gonna be an artiste I'm an adult this is like this is it this is the beginning of my career as a legendary photographer right was uh, that the one with the flash built in or with the flash bulb that you attach oh you to had it? to attach it and it was like a rectangular thing and it yeah it, and every time you took a picture of the flash it would break yes yes and then you'd go to it was like five flashes in it and you had to buy refills for yeah, it so yep, bad we had that one well, my sister had it, and I was extremely jealous. But anyway, go Cameras on. Cameras <laughs> generated a lot of trash, let me tell you. So I get this camera, and I'm very excited about it. And I take some pictures on Christmas Eve, although, of course, I, or not Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. But I am obviously, because this is who I am in my nature, very stressed about making the flash and the film last as long as possible. <laughs> and I know. so That's I stopped like taking a nightmare for a kid. Right? That's I know, right? So I put the camera away, and then the camera disappears. And my mom is like, you're so irresponsible. Like, that was the thing you wanted. You lost it. And I was like, I, I don't know. Like, I it was on my desk in my room. Like, that, I put it right there in a very special place where it wouldn't be broken or anything like that. And it just was mm-hmm. gone. And eventually we stopped. I stopped getting yelled at about it. But, like, it was still in my mind. Like, what happened to it? Like, how am I such a failure with this camera? And a few months later, my mom is helping my brother clean out the closet. And she finds it in the back. And all the film has been used. And it was like 24 exposures, I want to say. And my wow. brother's like, oh, I don't know. That's like a coincidence. Like, I, I, I didn't, I don't know. And my mom was like, well, we're going to go get the film developed. We go get the film developed. And there's like three or four pictures of Christmas with my family. And then the rest of it are pictures taken by my brother. And I was telling you this when we were preparing for this. But this is how it comes ties into the My Buddy. There were all these nude photos of My Buddy. <laughs> Um, like, and my brother's room had wood paneling, uh, very, like, very of that time. Yes. And years later, there was this Calvin Klein campaign in the 90s that was, like, very controversial because it had this, like, weird porno sort of lighting and it was in a room with wood paneling and it was, like, young people in, like, sort of, I know they weren't nude, but they were just in provocative positions. And it always made me think of that my buddy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my buddy photo shoot that my brother did. Right. Uh, and Ads were loosely inspired by your brother's work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, whether or not that photo shoot was a cry for help, we'll never know. I brought it up to my brother and he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, yeah, you do. Um, this is like a few years ago. And I was like, okay, fine. Um, but like my buddy is like one of those things that like you saw on TV and you're like, oh my God, I can't stop singing this song. Like I have to have it. And then right. it was just like a lot of toys showed up in our house and nobody wanted it yeah. anymore. And, well, and also we talk about like the feeling behind it and the ambiance that it creates in the commercials. Like you see, I remember the kid was like doing stuff with a buddy, like my buddy. He had him like in a wagon and he had him yes. on the front of his bike and he was riding around. He was so happy. And it's like, you see that and you're like, oh my gosh, I can be happy like that kid. And it's woven into the cartoon. So it creates this whole story and then you get it. It's like the Ikea effect. 
<laughs> you know, you buy one thing from Ikea and it's like, oh, like, that doesn't look as cool as it did. Surrounded by all the other things, you know, my buddy didn't come with the cartoons or like the, the friend on the bike or the wagon. It was just the doll. You had yeah. to create the, the world. Yeah, <laughs> so it's totally. Selling, um, a set, selling a feeling which like is so pervasive in marketing of anything, any products. I mean, here it is. It's 2022 and you were describing this commercial and I I remember it so clearly. I oh, remember yeah. the, my buddy in the wagon. I remember him on the bike. Well, again, I don't think there were, even if even there were a lot more at the time than there had been in the past of toy options, like not anywhere near what there are today. So I don't think that there was a lot, you know, they were pushing things to us, but it wasn't as many things. I think that's true too. And it's interesting because like I can barely remember a lot of the cartoons, but man, I remember the ads. Yeah, <laughs> only thing I, I can remember like Pee Wee's Playhouse was on. Yeah. And that was it because that was my favorite. So different than anything else we'd seen mm-hmm. um, at that point. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of L.A., We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. 
Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you tell me what you think here, Joss. Does it feel a little unethical to you that kids programming would expose kids to so much advertising? Um, yeah, no. <laughs> it's not uncool. Uncool, right? <laughs> and I wonder if it was by design or it was something that happened and they were like, oh, look at this. This well, works. Have I got some stories for you? Are you ready? <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't... It wasn't always that way that kids were being exposed to a lot of advertising. Um, Here in the United States, the FCC, that's the Federal Communications Commission, is the source of all regulation and enforcement of those regulations when it comes to advertising and children's programming. 
And there were some organizations that popped up here and there over the years in like the 50s and the 60s. But overall, the FCC did a good job of controlling the creep of advertising into kids shows from 1946 to 1983 and put a pin in 1983 because we're going to come back to that like that's a big turning point of course Mm -hmm. it sets the tone for everything we've already just talked about right okay broadcasters of course tried to get around this advertising policy because you know it was in their best interest to, to sell as many ads as possible like that's how television makes money while not charging you to watch it Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, we live in a different time now, but it is interesting. Even I'll be like, oh, I like pay for Hulu, but I still get ads. Right. Like, it's you know, there were some cases here and there that were almost threatened to basically destroy the FCC's regulation. And one of them was in 1969 when the FCC took aim at a cartoon called Hot Wheels. Now, this show was ostensibly about a racing club, but we know that Hot Wheels are a toy. Yes, no, it n- does not show up in my memory as a show. It does no, not me show up. <laughs> so, well, there's a reason why. Oh, we're, so, we're, yeah, we weren't here yet. Okay, 1969. We here. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we weren't here yet. But uh, Hot Wheels were actually created by Mattel to be the boy version of Barbie. They were basically like, what's something that we can sell a lot of to boys? Because, you know, theoretically, we're only selling Barbies to girls. This is the 60s, so that sounds about right. Yes. Um, and... M- Hot Wheels were the hottest holiday toy of 1968. The FCC argued, as we all would in this case, that the show was basically one long commercial for the toy. Now, Mattel and the producers of the cartoon disagreed. But I don't even know how you argue your way around this, right? After two years of controversy and a lot of threats and, you know, court stuff, all these things, uh, the show was canceled because Mattel couldn't find a good argument. Yeah. So what you're saying is uh, Hot Wheels had been already in production when the show started. Like it was already a product that was available. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. 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 In 1974, there was a win for the FCC when the courts determined that the FCC could enforce regulations that would keep advertising on any television program, whether it was for children or adults, to a maximum of 16 minutes per hour, which feels low compared to now, Yeah, I think. Well, yeah, we're talking about like cable TV, right? Not, um, well, I guess Hulu, but like we're, we all stream now. So it's like kind but, of like, a, regular yeah, TV. Regular yeah, regular TV. Because <laughs> like, we watch, I watch a lot of like regular TV. Everything we watch is streaming, but there's still ads, right? But when yes. we are in our RV, we actually have an antenna and we'll like be like, let's oh, see what's man. on TV out here. How whimsical and, and old timey. <laughs> I know. So, I mean, if you listen, get an antenna and you'll always be able to watch SVU. It's like always on on something. (laughs) And sometimes Um, like QVC or QVC, like so many, (laughs) so many of those things, too. So I noticed immediately because I'm so accustomed to just watching streaming content where there are ads, but maybe only like three sets in in an hour uh, that there are like ads every five minutes and some shows are sped up so that they can fit in more ads. And anything law and order related is a great example. Like we were in a hotel room one night watching 
like regular law and order. And it was seriously like they brought a guy in for interrogation. They're like, did you do it? No, I didn't do it. Okay, well, that's cool. Okay, see you later. Bye. And I was like, what just happened? I don't even know. Did and then it was a commercial. Speed it up. They speed it up and like edit or they speed up their voices. So they're like talking like this. They're literally like, did you do it? Oh my God. Like, it's like or their voices are like slightly higher. You're like, their voice doesn't sound the same as usual. Dustin said that there's a special way that you can do it that oh. is so like, it's not even like a person is really sitting down and doing it. It's like now Machine all like, you know, AI based where mm-hmm. they just like speed it up, but they can control the tone. Okay. And, and the thing is like, because a person's not going in there and doing it, uh, scenes that were already probably pretty like fast mm-hmm. become like mega fast. Wow. Um, and so like an interrogation, for example, that would be pretty like high pressure, people talking fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it's like, I was like, wait, did the guy do it? I was so confused. <laughs> I need a then second. Then suddenly we're at a jail. I just, we were at I a just jail. need a second. I need it to, uh, I need to absorb I, it real quick. Was, <laughs> And then like suddenly they were like walking him into the jail like pretty fast once again. And they were like, here you are, you're in jail. Like, okay, I'm in jail. Okay, cool. See you later. Bye. <laughs> like, it was just like, it wow, was they like, walk really fast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was like, I, I can't, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I can't watch this anymore. I'm like, I watch these things so I can only have pay attention. Right. And if I'm going to have to pay full attention to this, it's just not the right fit for me. Right. <laughs> exactly. I need it. I need TV in the background as a friend that's in the room because I work from home, you know, not because I need to pay attention to something. Exactly. Yeah. And like something like that was just like so fast paced that I was like, I, it's just moving pictures to me at this point. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. So I do think that probably uh, we have seen the pendulum swing the other way in terms of the amount of commercials on a regular, like, you know, free, like, television network. Mm-hmm. Um, a study released by the FTC in 1978 found that, I mean, shocking, so shocking, hold on to your pants, <laughs> television advertising did indeed mislead many of its younger viewers. Womp, womp. Children found it difficult to differentiate between reality and fantasy, and many toddlers and smaller children viewed the commercial with the same eagerness and fervor as they did the actual show. So they couldn't, it was all one big thing to them, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't like there wasn't a difference. Yeah, which um, and makes that, a ton of sense, yeah. Right, it really does, right? I mean, like there were, the study was really granular where they were like, you know, ask kids, like, do you believe after watching this cartoon about wizards that wizards are real? And they were like, yeah. You know, like, the, like it was, it was, I mean, and maybe wizards are real. I'm not, I'm not being anti-wizard here, right? <laughs> wizards are absolutely w- real, Go on. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> so the FTC study showed that many children, one, have difficulty differentiating television commercials from programming. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Two, show little understanding that the purpose of commercials is to create product demand. Once again, a f- try- let's just try to explain advertising to a child. A lot of adults child. don't understand that. So, um, Agreed. Agreed. And I think social media really blurs that oh, line, right? Because sure. you're like, I can't even tell. Absolutely. Um. And that children would place, and this was from the FTC study, I love this this phrasing, indiscriminate trust in commercial messages mm. because they fail to recognize the selling purpose of ads. And so they can't evaluate it and say, oh, well, that was just an ad and I don't really need that. I mean, obviously, right? Like they are just like, oh, right now I'm watching Bigfoot, but now I'm seeing 
my buddy and I want both of them in my life. Right. As you were talking about my buddy and the commercial and the way it was like, and you would take him in the wagon and take him on the bike and all these things. Like, I think it really would probably plant into children this idea that when you get my buddy, those things start happening. Automatically. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't yeah. have to think about it or do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, and I think also like this whole idea is like, was even new at the time for like parents. So I know like a lot yeah. of us parents, like I have young, youngish kids and I'm aware of it. So I'm always just like, you can kind of like guide them a little bit, I guess. Um, be like, nope, that's fake. So like, that's one of my kids, like famous lines, like everything she hears now, it's like, nope, that's fake. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> These findings don't shock me, but I also think that, you know, there has been a sea change as we, especially as we, our generation has become parents where we're like, oh, children are smaller people and like things that happen to them affect all different aspects of their emotional development, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, which, and of course you shouldn't sell them a whole bunch of stuff all the time. Yeah, yeah. Which and in, in the past was more compartmentalized, you know, childhood totally. is childhood and teenagehood is teenagehood and, you know. Yeah. And it's all unrelated. And they're all basically. Rather, you leave like, one behind and you bring nothing with you to the next yeah. phase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what really happens is that you feel this desire to have stickers all the time or whatever else, <laughs> even when you're like in your 30s, right? Right. Well, how, um, where do you think TikTok came from? Sticker books. <laughs> Duh. Exactly. To- totally did. <laughs> so obviously, this study, people read it and they're like, okay, we really need to protect children from advertising as they should, right? Yes. And so that continues, that kind of like empowers the FCC for the next few years to really like stay on top of it and like protect children. But things took a turn in the 80s with the election of Ronald Reagan. Mm. So I'm just going to say that every time I'm like, why did this bad thing happen (laughs) that made people buy more stuff? Every single time I find out it relates to Ronald Reagan. (laughs) I don't know. Like, that's why we lost home ec in schools, right? Mm -hmm. And this is also, we're going to see this massive change in how children are exposed to advertising. So Reagan is like number one fan of capitalism. Like he loved capitalism so much. Mm -hmm. Like that was his jam, like selling stuff and big business and let business get even bigger. And like his feeling was that any regulations that stifled business growth had to go. And he also thought most regulations stifled business growth, whether they were environmental uh, workers, you know, protected workers or, you know, in this case, uh, protected children. Yes, yeah. So he was all instant gratification man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, he probably totally, totally. had a sticker book anyway. <laughs> oh my God, like so many, <laughs> yes. right? Right. He definitely stuck them to the page <laughs> yeah. for sure. Um, oh, and ouch. He, <laughs> <laughs> listen, it's okay to have some things in common with him. He also loved animals and you love animals too. It's all That's fine. Okay. Anyway, okay. I love animals. It's all fine. Right. Okay. So he naturally was like, wow, selling stuff to kids is a big business that could be so much bigger if we just could find a way to sell more stuff to kids by removing a lot of regulations around how we're allowed to sell stuff to kids. Because the thing about selling to kids, right, is that they don't read newspapers. They don't read magazines. They find adult shows boring, except for me. Like, I loved adult shows for <laughs> sure. You? And we watched them with my <laughs> mom, right? But most kids didn't. Mm. Um, and so you get into this pickle where you're like, how do you advertise to children since, like, they don't read magazines or newspapers or watch Dallas or whatever? Mm-hmm. Well, you have to get them during their special television viewing time. And that would be cartoons. For sure. Right? Yeah. 
1981, Reagan appointed a new head of the FCC who totally shared his opinion on regulations and business, and that was a guy named Mark S. Fowler. Under his direction, every regulation around children's programming and advertising was obliterated. His view was very simple. Shielding kids from advertising hurts business. And it wasn't the FCC's job to teach kids how to differentiate ads from content. Like he was just like, listen, my job as as a member of this administration is to ensure that the U.S. can just grow business and be like this dominating global economic superpower, mm-hmm. right? And, and we got to do that. Right? Yeah. And f- yeah, exactly, exactly. So for the first couple of years, so this happened in like 1981 when he started pretty fast dismantling a lot of these regulations. It kind of took a little bit of time for it to start to play out in front of children all over the country because, you know, programs had to be made, right? Ads had to be created, all this stuff. And there's lead time on that. So 1983 is when this starts. This is like a period, it lasts from 1983 to 1989 that is really considered the era of deregulation, specifically when it comes to animation and children's programming. Okay. The first show that launched that was a very transparent uh, attempt at selling more stuff was the Pac-Man show in 1983. I vaguely remember this, but not very well. Like I, It was so short-lived. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw it, but I've definitely heard of it and maybe seen clips from it. So it was a show based on the video game Pac-Man with a huge, huge array of other merch and toys in production ready to like hit the shelves the moment the show arrived and you know on, on the screen. That show was actually produced by Hanna-Barbera, which I thought was interesting, too. Um, Because at that point, like, Hanna-Barbera was definitely sort of like, Hanna-Barbera was sort of hitting a wall in terms of their growth because their kind of style of animation and storytelling and characters felt out of pace with what kids were into in the 80s. Okay, yeah. Um, I still, I mean, I remember those cartoons being on all the time. (sighs) I remember them so well, and I don't know if I'm just like a snob, but I always, I could never stand Hanna-Barbera animation because the lines were too thick. (laughs) Uh, I didn't like it either, and I will tell you, every cartoon that they put out was basically the same as every other cartoon. Oh, yeah. Like the same, the plot, they were just like... had no depth, and they were goofy, uh, and they were annoying sounding, and I just wasn't a fan. But I know other people were. I was more like, I mean, I was more of a 90s kid, so it was like Doug Funny was like, or like Ren and Stimpy. That was like more of my era. Yeah, um, yeah. The sketchy cartoons, The Simpsons, and stuff like that. But man, I was always just like, man, look at those lines. They're too thick. (laughs) They were just, I like... I think that, uh, you know, we've seen, like, a lot of nostalgia surrounding all these other cartoons from the 80s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. We've ne- we don't see, see it happening with Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. yeah. Like, no one cares, right? Yeah. It, was, yeah. Um, yeah, it, just, it just felt dated then. It was like, take my wife, please, mm-hmm. kind of humor. Mm-hmm. You know, it looked terrible, yeah. right? Um, so, after the Pac-Man show... More than 40 shows based on toy lines flooded the airwaves. 40. More than 40. Yeah, when you were it's telling a- me about this, it kind of broke my heart a little bit. <laughs> a lot of it. Me too. Because uh, me I looked too. at the list and I was like, oh my gosh, it worked. <laughs> it did work. I mean, as I was digging into this, I was like, oh my God, I'm like so filled with rage as I see this. Um, and I will say like, 
not every show that hit the airwaves was a success. Um, a lot of them got canceled pretty fast. A lot of them didn't even drive sales. In the beginning of the this new era of shows based on toys, uh, many of those shows were syndicated, meaning like rather than being like a major network like NBC, like the NBC Saturday morning cartoons, which I always watched, it was like the Smurfs and all like the best cartoons, in my opinion. Oh, every right, Saturday yeah. for sure. Yeah. These cartoons were not a part of that because the major networks were sort of like, uh, this... We're having a little bit of an ethical quandary about programming that is transparently, so transparently intended to sell products. Don't worry. (laughs) They got over it. (laughs) Harkening back to a time when networks had a heart. Just a a (laughs) little bit. Just a little bit. So what toy companies did is they were able to persuade stations. Like I remember a lot of these as I was reading this list, especially the older ones, I was like, oh, yeah. I remember now that a lot of these cartoons weren't on Saturday morning. They were like before after school and they would be on like our local station that eventually became a Fox station, like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was like on the three main, like ABC, NBC, CBS, yeah. Fox, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So these were on the like other stations. Mm-hmm. We had one that came out of Baltimore where I grew up and they had every day after school, like two or three hours of cartoons that were hosted by this guy named Captain Chesapeake, who was a ship captain that lived on a boat. Uh, Oh, (laughs) interesting. Reminds me very much of dear old Captain Noah on my network. Yeah, (laughs) interesting. (laughs) I always thought Captain Chesapeake was really scary. Um, there was just something about him that I was like, I wish I, I'm going to leave the room until he's done talking. Like, I just he seemed like a drunk old guy who should not be talking to children. Uh, mm. It was weird that they were like, you know, who would best get kids engaged in cartoons is a guy who's like, I don't know, 40 <laughs> An uh, old guy and lives on a boat. Yeah. And is like, <laughs> and yeah, so Captain Chesapeake, right. uh, this just unlocked a memory of me for me where you could join up to be a crew member of Captain Chesapeake's crew, I suppose. And if you send him a letter, then he would be like, and here's our new c- crew members this week. And he would like read the list, or, like oh, you know, man. yeah, Captain Noah. You would send his your pictures. There was a song. Oh, okay. send your pictures to dear old Captain Noah, and then he put them on at the end. And you'd wait, and you'd look, and I sent so many pictures to Captain Noah. And damn it, Captain Noah, you never what? put it on. What? I never saw it, and it was on at like six a.m. on a Saturday, uh, and so you'd wake up really early. And wow. So you'd stop, you'd wait, never saw my picture. Rude. Dang it, Captain Noah. Well, anyway, okay, <laughs> I was so freaked out by Captain Chesapeake that I never applied to be a crew member because I, I, you know, I didn't understand, but it seemed like there would be a point where you'd have to go hang out with him. <laughs> and no. I was just like, I, I don't want to do that. And boats are boring unless they're the love boat. So, like, I don't want to go hang out with him. And I, in my mind, he, his boat was in the inner harbor where the aquarium is. I have no idea. But I was like, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to go there. Right. right. Well, Captain Noah was in Atlantic City, and I was just well, like, "Whoa!" Not, not, I wasn't super interested either. But <laughs> at the end, all he had all these kids on, and they'd all wear like um, pageant style dresses, and I was very much interested. Okay, now in that, that sounds part. interesting. Yeah. yeah. No, like, yeah. Captain uh, Chesapeake didn't have that kind of glam, but it makes sense because, like, Inner Harbor not as glamorous as Atlantic City. Anyway, 
in seventh grade, this kid, he was like the most popular kid in our grade. His name was Chris Jordan. Um, Chris Jordan came to school and told everyone that he saw my name on Captain Chesapeake <gasps> after school. But really what he outed himself as is someone watching Captain Chesapeake. Um, oh, and he was like, and then for the, like, the next, until, you know, we all became adults, everyone called me crew member. Like that was like their fun nickname for me. And I was like, I know that I never sent in my name to Captain Chesapeake because he, he is gross. And no so, one believed yeah. me. So, Chris, your plan backfired <laughs> big time. Because, <laughs> yeah, because he outed himself. And <laughs> Exactly. But it took, it took like, decades for us to Dec- see the full picture here. Right. So right, you go, Chris Jordan. Okay. So anyway, so these, these originally these uh, cartoons based on toys were on these kinds of channels, right? Or, like, at six in the mm-hmm. morning, I remember something being on before we went to school for sure, after school, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And that was because... The toy companies are like, listen, we're going to not only let you have this show for free um, in exchange for airtime, so you can just fill it, you can keep all the advertising money. And toy companies will advertise on during these shows because they know they'll have a captive audience. And these like smaller stations were like, great. This is a, a why say no to this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, like I said, the major networks gave in too because they they were like this this tidal wave of children's programming based on toys is becoming like unavoidable. Like we're running out of things right. to show, so they started airing types of some of these shows too. And I remember some of these specifically starting as weird syndicated shows and then suddenly appearing on like NBC or something on a Saturday. Right, right. Well, yeah, they saw that there was an interest and demand for it. Totally, so. totally. And then it was so such an integral part. Like if you wanted to have a top toy, you needed to be making a cartoon. So toy companies began to work cartoon production into their budgets because it was such a key marketing technique. You could not skip it. And ultimately, many of these properties became the best-selling toys of the 80s. Some are still popular. Others are not. In fact, I would say most are not. And like I said, there were four, well more than 40 shows. Um, I picked a few that like I was like, oh, I think I remember these or I don't remember these Mm -hmm. at all. So He-Man was the next one. Very, very big innovation here with He-Man. Uh, <laughs> well, and and as, as I was telling you, She-Ra has made a huge resurgence late, like the last year. So she's still around. But no, He-Man, never a mention of well, He-Man. Well, he is like unappealing. <laughs> well, he's got that weird Dutch hair, boy haircut. And I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm sorry. My kid's here talking, saying you're talking about my favorite show. Well, there, there you go. go. She-Ra. Well, so that's so interesting to hear because like a lot of the things I read about this time is that She-Ra was a massive flop. Oh, yeah. I remember it being a massive flop. It's just like, it didn't didn't work. And He-Man right now, I would say, is like, oh, do you want to talk about, like, the white patriarchy and toxic masculinity? (laughs) Go watch some He-Man, right? Of course, yeah. Um, The next one is one that I did. I loved the show. I felt like it was so good when I was a kid. I loved it, too. I don't know if I could watch it now. Gem and the Holograms. It had so much pathos. Gem and the Holograms. Truly, truly, truly outrageous. Yes. And I had some toys. Well, only a couple. And I don't know. And I don't want to speak for you. But being kind of like a, not a weird kid, just like a kind of a quirky, different kid, like Gem really spoke to me because it, she was like this, like she was a normal, normal person. I say that in air quotes by day and like a rock and roller <laughs> with pink hair. And she had the, the doll had like the earrings that flashed. You could turn, put a battery in her and turn mm-hmm, her on. Mm-hmm. And she was giant, like bigger than Barbie. So you could share her high heels with Ken doll. 
<laughs> Ken was wearing gem shoes. You could, yes. I actually okay. This is so funny that you would mention this because she was bigger yes. than Barbie. And she had this awesome dress that had like one shoulder and it was oh, purple yeah. with silver stars on it and a ruffle. Dress. Yep. And that also fit Ken. <gasps> Why didn't I ever try that? I gotta dig in the basement and find them both. They're both down there. I know it. She also had like a cool hat and she had blonde hair when she was like by day, but when she was gem. What was her name when she wasn't gem? I don't remember. Jerica. Jerica, that's right. Which is a great name too. It is. And like you would put this hat on the doll and like the blonde hair would go or the pink hair would go underneath it and then you'd take the hat off and the and the pink hair would spill out in this like uh, waterfall so good. of locks. <laughs> anyway, we're, uh, we're we're basically showing everyone just how well these commercial these like uh, yeah they work. <laughs> and I remember the show was like really I thought good because like it had like a technological element, which was that the magic of Gem and and her band, the Holograms, is that they were all just like normal people in day life, but there was this machine synergy that was like a massive oh, right. computer that would. This makes no sense now. No, but at the time, like people that were alive, like around then, like computers were just like had to be like a character or in the background of everything because it was like, totally becoming such a thing. So she would say Showtime Synergy and her earrings would, that's like how she talked to Synergy through her earrings. That's right. And Synergy would use holograms to turn them all into these like rock stars, which doesn't make any sense now, but it was so it was cool at so the time. so cool, right? It was so cool. Right. And like, I'm not remembering any of the content of these com- cartoons, but like, like, like feminism light a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. And well, I remember the other thing about, Jerica is that she in her the daytime she like ran a foundation f- and like a home for orphan oh, girls right that's right so it was a real girl power kind of moment it, w- it really was and she had this boyfriend his name was Rio mm-hmm. and he was just such a tertiary character which I also appreciated <laughs> yeah, I did too. you know because yeah. I didn't like care about that stuff no and the love story was not really a mean thing in the show yeah no no not at all it was it was great it was more about like good versus evil that kind mm-hmm. of thing there was like a bad band called the Misfits, the Misfits. Who, yeah <laughs> actually yeah. I thought were really cool <laughs> I remember they had like a theme song that they like when they would introduce them in the intro and it would be like, we are the misfits. We're better than Jem. And so as an adult, whenever I would see someone wearing uh, a shirt for the real life band, the misfits, I like sing that to myself. (laughs) Um, So anyway, that's that's Jem and the Hologram. Uh So that one was successful, except that like I I'm pretty sure you can't find these toys anywhere. I think the toys were not successful. They lasted like a year or two and that was it. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if that one comes back though. Really? I would. I think it should. I think it should. Um, Then there was G.I. Joe, which my brother watched. Mm -hmm. My brother had tons of G.I. Joe toys. I I don't even know what to say about G.I. Joe. It feels so 80s to me and that it was like all about like, you know, uh, military industrial complex. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But they were like hero. G.I. Joe is your hero. So. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Then there was Care Bears. Mm, I was big into Care which Bears. Ha- are making a resurgence are they? right now oh, for sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're us. definitely this year. Okay. Yeah. I think it's like that pastel aesthetic oh, is nice. Yeah. Although, like a lot of toys of the 80s and 90s in this century, they gave them like a weird sexy makeover mm. where they become like thinner. So the new, or, oh God, don't get me started. Yeah. So the, the Care Bears now are sexy Care Bears. <laughs> They're not as sexy, but I would say they're flirtatious. Oh, flirtatious looking. looking. Okay, all right. So big eyelashes. Is what you're saying? Yeah, ex- exactly. Like that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, the pound puppies, which I 
I think I got one for Christmas one year and I was like, wow, this is like the most anticlimactic thing yeah. ever. But like, I definitely wanted one. I wanted one. I never got one. It was just a stuffed puppy. Mm-hmm. It was a stuffed animal with like fancy yeah. marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My Little Pony, which I <laughs> loved. loved. Did, you, did you have the My Little Pony stable? Oh, yes. It was yes. so okay. good. I- it was so good. And my friend who lived up the street, her name was also Amanda, but she was like my brother's age, but like she was the only girl around and she was very mature for her age and she was a horse girl. Mm. And I would go over there and we would play My Little Pony for like eight hours. Oh, yeah. Easy. Yeah. I, had a, I had a neighbor and like they didn't get babysitters. They would just put us all together because <laughs> our ages <laughs> combined would be old enough. <laughs> <laughs> <I guess>. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. And right? I had a we had a neighbor friend who kept her toys like immaculate versus like me who played the heck out of her toys. Like this kid, it was everything oh, was yeah. on display, but she would let us play with them when we were over there, and everything was in perfect condition and all like lined up and perfect. Oh, it was magical. It was magical. Wow. Yeah, oh. and they had like little. You remember like the little hats you could put on them? Like they were yes, soft. I love the hats. hats. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and their ears like held them on. Mm-hmm. So, my friend Amanda had the beauty salon. Oh, for, yeah, I remember that. And so between that and the stable, like we had a whole like I felt like a little town. Mm-hmm. She had something else, some other piece too. So we would like set it up, and like they would walk around. Like I don't, I don't think there was a ton of stuff. No. And I also don't think there were as many ponies. I think there were only like a handful of pony characters even on the show. Whereas now, mm-hmm. like. Another thing you should definitely look up the My Little Ponies because I had to find one. My kid lost the doll and I didn't know what his name was. And there's like a thousand My Little Ponies now. Oh my God, I know. My Little Ponies and Little My Little Ponies. And they all have different cutie marks. That's the mark on their butt. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm, you know, and mm -hmm. some of them are similar and they're in these different little groups, subcultures. (laughs) But now they're also like sexy. They got a sexy makeover in this century too. They are sexy, svelte. They look like they are, you know, um, what is it like um workout influencers <laughs> yeah they do they do it's like they wear a lot of makeup mm. they're always like in a provocative pose their hair like, is like are. a swirl whereas like our the the my little ponies of our youth just had like real straight plastic hair <laughs> it was like you could brush it and that was it they were like real ponies though like physically yeah. like as close as a my little pony could be to a real pony well they were really chunky they were, they were really chunky like a real pony yeah one of my ponies had a pair of, like well i guess it would be four pieces of high-heeled shoes that she could oh. wear and i remember they were like rubbery like the hats. oh my gosh I which mean, it's like I-, I wish i had that right now because i think that is hilarious the image of like a pony in high heels they were red <laughs> Like, of course they were. They tapping around. Uh, it defies <laughs> it defies all logic. Um, as we were talking about My Little Pony, Dustin did come in and put a paper on my desk, and he wants me to read this. <laughs> okay. We are the misfits. Our songs are better. We are the misfits, and we're going to get her. That was the song. <laughs> That's right. That's uh, right. And it was like a real like rock and roll bat- like, like music, like <laughs> real hard, hard rock. It was. It was. <laughs> and I like kind of like think they were better. I think they were better. I think they were cooler. They had better fashion sense for sure. I mean, that's a divisive, you know, comment, but I do believe that. I know it's like good versus evil here. I just think that they were misunderstood, you know? 
Yeah, of course. And what we know, bullies are just regular people that are hurting. Exactly. They were hurting exactly. Because they were not getting the, the street cred that they so deserve. Exactly. Exactly. And maybe they were, you know, Jerrica came from generational wealth and maybe the oh, misfits yeah. too, and they resented that, which is a feeling I can right. understand too. And she was blonde. And like in the 80s, if you were blonde, you were also mean. So they probably just didn't put that part in the show. Probably. They really gave her good at it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I feel very special to be married to someone who knows the lyrics to the song the miss the spits and knows yeah, about them keeper right yeah. there <laughs> um so yeah my little pony has also like you, i mean you in case anybody missed this what like what what jess was saying like they're still going you know they're yeah. going strong oh yeah they're really going well they had like a couple of movies in the mm-hmm. past few years they have songs i think sia was involved i think so if not should yeah. be yeah <laughs> If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear underscore st. Dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. 
slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the Eternal City. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. Here's one that I hated that my brother loved, which were Transformers. Um, those I do not feel have resurged because they are, they suck. I, my brother, they, they, they were really yeah, hard sure. to transform for children. There's definitely like things that come out that are Transformers inspired all the time. But sure. I haven't, I don't know. And I'm sure there's like Transformers available just because like, I don't know, in like 2000, what, like 18, like all the old toys just came back and they are still right. kind of floating around. But yeah, as far as like a moment, I don't think that they're back. I, know I don't know. They though, made maybe. some like big budget live action films oh, in right. this, but of I don't course. think Shia LaBeouf. Right, but yeah, I don't think right? that like I, I just don't think the toys fully came back. I don't think back. that yeah. translated because I think it was for us. Yeah. The movies was for totally. us. Who, Not for children. You know, yeah. Right. Who experienced it in, you know, its original form. Yeah. Then there was one called the Get Along Gang, which I believe, I think it was a bunch of animals that lived in a park. I know the name, but I don't remember the Get Along Gang. Maybe I need just need a visual. Let's see. They were a core gang of six members. Um, Montgomery okay. Moose, Dottie Dog, Wilma Lamb, Zipper Cat, Portia Porcupine, and Bingo Beaver. By the way, Bingo Beaver was a prankster and a gambler. <laughs> gambler. <laughs> I hope he's doing okay. <laughs> I know. I hope so, too. That's really, really scary. I remember these guys visually, but I don't think I watched this. But they remind me of Calico Critters. <laughs> totally. Totally. And I remember the song was something like, the get along gang, get along gang, or something like that. It was not that great. Um, this obviously, like, not, I mean, not having the longevity of, like, My Little Pony. Uh, next were the Popples, which I also have a vague memory of. And there were toys, but this was another one that was, like, in and out so fast. 
Right. Well, popples were like a ball that was also a stuffed animal. Yeah. Right? So you could, they were trying to make it be like, oh, look, it's a ball. You could throw it around, but no, it's also a doll. Yeah. It just, it just didn't yeah. have the longevity. I remember the show. It was very much like Care Bears. Yes. Popples are definitely, and I mean, you mentioned this earlier, but like a lot of these toys begat other toys that were often mm-hmm. not as successful. And Popples was definitely yeah. a spinoff of Care Bears in one way or another. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, totally. Um, Rainbow Bright, which I feel like is, icon- Rainbow Bright is iconic, uh, aesthetically, yeah. uh, but like, you know, kind of came and went really fast. And also like you remember and you get a warm feeling, but I know nothing about her. Like I know about like, kind of like she was sort of like a superhero, but not. Yeah. I can't remember her personality. She lived on another planet or something. I don't either. I just remember her aesthetic and it was amazing. There was a lot of another planet stuff going Mm -hmm. on too. People were really into space in the eighties. It's an easy plot device. You know, um, something I didn't put on this list, but I should have were the strawberry shortcake cartoons, which I do remember, even though I was very young. And I remember specifically because the muffin man was like the bad guy and he would like twirl his mustache. Mm -hmm. Um, So the strawberry shortcake, I do feel has longevity and has come back in this century in a new sexy version. Also, it's not as sexy as as My Little Pony, but they made her thinner and, you know, it's like all the stuff. That's crazy. Yeah. Those toys were like fire, though. I never had a single one. I just wanted them so bad because they all smelled good. And that was the first time that happened, which is also inspired by stickers. Oh, (laughs) totally. Totally. Yeah. Sorry to keep coming back to that, but indeed was inspired. 100%. I'm sure it's the same technology. Yeah. Yeah. My biggest memory of Strawberry Shortcake were stickers, actually, as well. So all of these yeah. toys definitely had uh, stickers as well and many clothes <laughs> and all kinds of other things. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. Lunch boxes. <laughs> we're going to talk about this one in a bit, The Adventures of oh, Teddy yeah, Ruxpin. This was another one where mm. they were like, we're working on the toy. We're working on the cartoon at the same time. When I tell you so much effort went into this Teddy Ruxpin stuff, <laughs> it's like so unbelievable. It's crazy. It's crazy. Because uh, that's one that I feel like has did not have longevity. So there was a lot of, of expectation of longevity. Though. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But like the, the toys that were very technology based didn't age well, right? Because like right. new technology came, Teddy Ruxpin is one of those. I mean, Gem and the Holograms were definitely like mm. technology-based too and you couldn't, it wouldn't work now. You'd have to totally retcon the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. It was a novelty. GoBots was a very derivative version of the Transformers, but some people say they liked GoBots better. I don't know. Mm. There was mm-hmm. one I've literally never heard of. It sounded familiar <laughs> to Justin called Street Sharks. Street Sharks. I do remember Street Sharks vaguely, but that was another one that, forgive me, was uh, marketed towards voice. Yeah. Oh, no, totally, totally. I mean, it was interesting for Dustin to come in and tell me the cartoons that he remembered, like Thundercats and all the derivatives of Thundercats, and they were all toys as well. And like those to me, I... I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember Thunder, 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 Cats, <laughs> right? Cats. Right, yeah. exactly. But like, I don't remember the show being that uh, engaging for me. Uh, just like, no. you know, but I remember my brother watching it. Obviously, it was around because I have the theme song in my head. Right. I feel like that was the, another one where they were trying to like in- integrate like girl, like f- girl characters, female characters into like um, superheroes. Definitely. And they were trying to get kids into, yeah, yeah, girls into like loving superhero stuff. Totally. I mean, even like thinking about G.I. Joe, there was suddenly there was like a lady character. And I say lady because her name was Lady Jane mm, on the show. And that was like, was. so girls will watch. 
Yeah. Gotta put yeah. a lady in there. We'll just give her right. the most derivative name ever. <laughs> lady. Let's, what should we call the lady one? Let's the, call her lady. Yeah, lady. But she needs a last name. How about Jane? Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Do it. Anyway. Send it to press. But Street Sharks is giving me um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Maybe. Big time. That sounds right to me. I'm assuming it was a gang of sharks, but who wore clothes and fought. Mm. I have no idea. Um, yeah. Just, yeah, people, animals walking around. Totally. A lot of people, animals. A lot of people, animals. So you probably are not going to be surprised to hear that a lot of these shows were pretty formulaic with similar storylines. And that's because toy makers would control the creative aspect. They'd be like, these are the only stories you're allowed to tell. These are the stories we want you to tell. So writers were just executing direction. And... I see this happening in fashion all the time where people who literally don't know anything about how clothes are made are like, these are the clothes I want made, right? Mm. I'm sure you've worked with that too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it results in like not good product, right? So it doesn't surprise me with the cartoons. No, of course. I actually like not to go on a tangent, but I see this also in kids books. Interesting. Where they'll make a, they'll make a kid's book from a, a movie that was a yeah. toy that was a character that was this. And it is like my kids like, please read me this book. And it's just like, are you kidding me? Oh, yeah. They're terrible no, they're please. terrible yeah <laughs> yeah go get Pippi long stocking and yeah knock exactly it off. <laughs> exactly yeah i agree you're totally right and i remember some of these books when i was a kid the exception being american yeah. girl books which were great which were great oh so good anyway my mom even who was like you know not thinking about these things the way we are would be like i don't really think you want that strawberry shortcake book you're not gonna like it you know yeah right well i think like once you got your hands on american girl books you knew for the rest of your life all those <laughs> the potential yeah, exactly right? exactly they were just i i mean i would go back and read them now maybe i will I'll <laughs> yeah back. let me know do they hold up <laughs> so i'm yeah. going to share this article in the show notes called when reagan met optimus prime from the animation world network i really loved reading this it talked more about like how this era of of the deregulation of cartoons was just so bad for the animation industry and even kind of made it lose a lot of credibility because it was no mm. longer associated with quality. This quote from it is great. Uh, the writer says, deregulation in the final analysis did not make American animation any better. It did little to further the art and negated creativity and originality as the be benchmarks for animated TV fare. It can be argued mm. that the decade prior to deregulation produced few outstanding programs, but at least they engaged some level of the imagination. In the age of right. Ronald Reagan and Optimus Prime, this claim was harder to prove. Cartoon shows Ugh. of the deregulation era were often nothing more than soulless vehicles for product vehicles. promotion, <laughs> brightly colored symbols of corporate capitalism's ascendancy over children's entertainment. Oh, that's Ooh. so sad. It makes me so sad. It, and imagine being an animator at this time when it was such an art form for I know. so long. Like, I'm thinking back to like Disney movies, like um, Snow White era, like, you know, that kind of time in time when the background was like a painting yeah you know the artwork was so beautiful and so well thought out and, yeah oh, it just breaks your heart that this happened and we're still seeing like you know 
oh this yeah today oh, yeah for sure it yeah, never ended that's why when like something uh, yeah no it never ended so when like a cartoon comes out that is or something like that like i don't know i'm thinking like fantastic mr fox or something like that that's really a work of art it really stands out it really really does i mean this i liken this to all my friends who work as designers for fast fashion brands where they're like i thought i went to school because i loved design and being creative and I had this vision and I love clothes and fashion mm-hmm. and style and then they go and they're like can you just remake this thing again but like change it slightly yeah, yeah. so Amanda's just doing an ad for my auto autobiography yeah basically <laughs> I was a footwear designer yeah, oh my god in shoes it is so egregious it'll be like someone literally putting a pair of shoes on your desk that they bought for $500 and saying can you copy this but we need it to be 1999. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And interestingly, I wanted to work in ceramics. That's what I, I wanted to be like a sculptor. And my mom's like, why don't you go to school for fashion? Um, <laughs> because then you'll be more marketable. Yeah. I mean, this is like, this is the environment right. that we grew up in. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Of course. I don't, I do not blame her for that. It's just like, that's, it's so true. It gets, it's so watered down. And even from like the original, like I I was lucky I worked at a place that let me kind of like, let my flag fly a little with designs just to kind of see how it went. Mm -hmm. But it always got watered down because buyers were buying the things that were on trend, which was basically one shoe that like some, you know, big fashion house did. That's how it is. I feel like specifically. It's like, we'll make it different. We'll put fringe on it. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So you become like the company that has the shoe with the fringe that is like all the others. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, talk about (laughs) like iterating on one thing over and over again, much like a lot of these toys Mm -hmm. were, it's the same thing. Um, So in 1990, um, by the way, now George Bush, the first George Bush was president. Mm. uh, So still a Republican presidency. But like the public in general, I was just like this, this whole like advertising to children thing is out of control. So Congress passed the Children's Television Act requiring the FCC to ensure the educational and informational merit of programming aimed at children was was there right like they could no longer just be like here's a show based on a toy and then there's going to be like 20 minutes of commercials in this 30 minute episode like there was like some control on it but it wasn't a cure really there was like no going back because obviously there were a lot of lobbying groups that were a part of this especially toy companies so yeah it didn't come out exactly as everyone had wanted. Well, and it also sounds like a law that was like, look, we made a law just to say we made a law. And now kids are, the kids are going to be fine. Right. right? Look, yeah. we, we made a law, guys. We did we, it. We're we done. Did Check. It. Like, Move you on. asked for a law, we did a law, and now we're doing other things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we did a law. So it wasn't a cure, right? Um, one thing, there was, there was a lot of language in there about making a certain percentage of children's programming educational because real talk, like, Cartoons were not, for the most part, educational. Um, And so it was rather than like turning every show into like something from PBS, which had had, like intrinsic educational value, uh, Mm. the cartoon companies and the toy companies were able to get around this by just adding a public service announcement at the end, like some sort of, you know, like with the information being presented by the characters from the show. So it'd be like, hey, just say no to drugs or you know, basic public safety, like don't talk to strangers kind of stuff. And it would be like right. two minutes at the end of the show. And it was like, okay, we did it. Moving on. Um, So like that mm-hmm. wasn't really beneficial at all. And I remember these, these things at the ends of cartoons because they were so dumb. Yeah. I'm very formulaic also. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Then the amount of commercials was limited to 10 and a half minutes on weekends and 12 minutes on weekday children's television. So actually, if you were watching cartoons after school or in the morning, you probably were going to get a more 
more advertising. And uh, that was also kind of where the sketchiest, most obviously based on a toy shows were being shown still. Interesting. Um, And like, I don't, I don't know about you, but like that morning and afternoon cartoon viewing, like I didn't watch a lot of that stuff, but my brother, like that was like his life. Like he couldn't wait to come home from school and watch cartoons. Yeah. I don't remember. I just remember being on. I don't remember like really watching it. I just remember being on. So I'm not sure if it was just kind of like I do it now where I was just like, I'll put it on for the sound and then I'll make some crafts. Totally, totally. But my brother, (laughs) like, 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 like he He was in it. Yeah. So he there was a period where so we were we were latchkey children for sure. Like when Mm -hmm. I was in fifth grade, my brother started first grade and my mom was like, you know, before that, I had been getting myself off to school. Now I was also getting Jared off to school. And then we come home and be alone, too, until like probably six o'clock. And so. I would get up in the morning and I would be like making breakfast, doing other stuff. And he would like immediately be in front of the television, like dressed and ready to go to school. And it seemed really weird to me that he was getting dressed so fast. And one night my mom went in to check on him and he was like super sweaty in bed. And she discovered that he had been <laughs> like so hard. Life hack here for everyone. Uh, he would put on his school clothes and then put his pajamas over it. It was the classic like zip up, you know, one piece pajamas and then get into oh bed. So that in the He's morning layering. he could just whip off the pajamas and be ready yeah. to watch cartoons. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing, right? But like he was serious about these cartoons and just like yeah. even hearing that he would be like getting even more ads during that just like bums me out, you know? Yeah. But I think you're touching on something interesting that's happening at the time too, is that we are watching more TV because our moms were working now too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like a time when women were heading back into the workforce. Um, And we talked about this a little bit and it was like, you know, was it because of inflation? Was it because think products were more expensive? Was it because, you know, it was more expensive to have a family or was it because the eighties were this time of like diamonds stripping off your body (laughs) and like, like, you know, fancy cars. And like, was everyone just trying to keep up to Joneses? (laughs) I think it was all of those things. It was all of the above. And also just, you know, women and women returning to the workforce, you know, as a thing they wanted to do, which was a good thing, but we are definitely more, um, raised more by uh, the TV than former generations. For sure. Yes. Yes, for sure. I mean, I I watch so much television. I was so much. I was talking about this recently with a friend that when I came home for school every day, uh, for some reason, Three's Company was on, and I'm pretty sure it would have been reruns at that point because that feels like such a '70s show. It does, yeah. And my friend Kara and I in third grade were like, we are very sophisticated. We do not watch <laughs> cartoons after school. We watch Three's Company because we're we're like sophisticated and yeah. I, and the Brady Bunch was on too during that time slot. Oh my god, I've seen every episode of the Brady Bunch. Yeah, like a hundred times. <gasps> oh, me too. Yeah, I'm kind of bummed out that our kids aren't watching the Brady Bunch. Just got to be honest. Yeah, me might too. have to do something about that at least in my household. So it might maybe it'll catch on. Parents out there, turn on the Brady Bunch. <laughs> the Brady Bunch movie and the sequel from the 90s. So good. Um, Very entertaining. So weird. So weird weird and wonderful. Yeah, I loved it. So we watched those um, and they they hold up. I recommend them. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) So anyway, so like we're getting more commercials. We're all watching a lot of TV. The other thing about the Children's Television Act is that if a cartoon was essentially a 30 minute advertisement for a toy, which a lot of cartoons were, it didn't count as an ad unless 
the ad, an ad for that specific toy ran during that 30 during minutes. 30 now, minutes. before that tele- Children's Television Act, you absolutely would watch Gem and the Holograms and there would be a commercial for the toys also. Like, definitely. I remember it. Ooh, I have very clear oh, memories of it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So they couldn't do that anymore. So they might say, okay, well, the first 30 minutes of this hour are Gem and the Holograms and the second 30 minutes are G.I. Joe. So we'll put the Gem ads during G.I. Joe. Like that kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it didn't fix it and it never really did fix it because the other thing that became even more lucrative and it continues into this century is making licensed product out of children's properties, right? I, mm-hmm. I When I think about it specifically, I think of, this is this is a throwback of Barney because oh, yeah. I felt like when Barney like blew up and that's a PBS program, uh, there was like Barney everything everywhere. Same thing with Teletubbies. Mm-hmm. So uh, kids are still, even now in the streaming era, when most kids are not watching network television, Saturday morning cartoons don't exist anymore. Uh, they're still exposed to a lot of marketing and advertising. Yeah, I uh, would say maybe more. <laughs> that's what actually I read an article from The Atlantic that really took the position that it's more. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm lucky in that my kids are, um, I have an 11 year old and a seven year old and they are into specific, um, people who create for YouTube, mm-hmm. which, you know, we're cool with. <laughs> good, good. And I'm not naive to say that they don't like drift off and watch other things, but those creators only really push their own product. So we are limited in that. That's good. But I'm not really sure if it work how it works for kids that like kind of jump around on like YouTube or whatever or YouTube kids. I'm not really sure. I mean, I would assume there's a lot of marketing and a lot of advertising. I mean, this Atlantic article was saying that there are a lot of ads on children's YouTube for sure. Yeah. Um, there are unboxing videos which we cannot. Oh for, right, like, right. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and those Why are like ads in, yeah. in an even more insidious way. Um, You know, most children's programs at this point have a whole series of toys and licensed items like clothing and lunch plates and stickers and soap and you name it attached to them. Like like, the world of licensing that kind of stuff is so granular that like one company might have the license to make backpacks, but the other company has the license to make a lunch bag. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I read a little bit about this. Yeah. Back in even the, um, the early two thousands, this was true. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a big thing. And I do wonder, you know, like I know Netflix is now having ads, um, you for like a cheaper subscription. And I was sort of wondering, cause I mean, there's like a lot of kids content on Netflix, mm-hmm. like what kind of ads kids are going to be seeing there. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder too. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is all about advertising to kids. Um, and I think it's just, I mean, I see how this translated into our adult lives, right? Like, I can't get over how social media really blurs the lines between advertising and real content. And it's not dissimilar to the Saturday morning cartoons. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. Might right? be worse because a lot of times, and this is, I do this so <laughs> to, on a very small scale as a plus size um, fashion person on the internet. Um, and you're kind of like, have to make it, you know, I'm showing you this because I like it. That's what you have to choose. I guess it is. a lot of times it's like you get paid to promote something and it's like, well, 
I, it's okay. You know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I so, get it. But, I but get you're it. right. It definitely has like many shades of Saturday morning cartoon advertising. <laughs> it does. Right. And what makes it even more successful is that, you know, if you were a kid watching a cartoon, you'd have to go ask your parents to take you to Toys R Us to get the toy, which what was the likelihood of that happening? Oh, gosh, um, but the closest one was a half an hour away. Exactly. I think I exactly. went there four times ever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. My mom was like, I'm not taking you. I will take you to Toys R Us once a year. That's right. it. She well, hated and it. I mean, and there wasn't Target. Like, there weren't superstores. Like, Walmart no, really wasn't no. even a big thing yet. And like, so you couldn't even go to a place like that where that also had toys. I think Kmart was the only one. Yeah. And that was not very, I mean, it was limited. I think there they were had, like, like three aisles. aisles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It and was it was like, like Barbie aisle, the pink aisle, and the G.I. Joe aisle. Totally. And that was it. Totally. Whereas like now, um, it, as an adult, if you're on Instagram, for example, and you see something you like, you could probably click a link and have it ordered within five minutes. You and know? you can maybe even get it the same day sometimes. Yeah, pretty scary, right? It is scary. Thank you, Jess, for spending almost four hours with me talking about toys. I mean, what a hashtag blessed situation to get to talk to one of your favorite people about toys for hours on end. I know, I guess I'm pretty lucky in certain ways. In next week's episode, we're gonna go hard on some of the biggest toy crazes of the 80s and 90s, including Cabbage Patch Kids, Teddy Ruxpin, Furby, and so much more. We had such a good time recording these episodes. I hope you had half as much of a good time listening to them. I'm sure by now you're all following Jess on all of the social media platforms, but just in case you aren't, you can find her on Instagram as at Jess in Space, that's with one S, and also on TikTok, which by the way, I say is TikTok on every first take. Um, you can find her on TikTok as Jess in Space, and that's also with one S. And if you just ignored everything I was just saying, that's okay too, because all of this will be in the show notes. <laughs> okay, ordinarily I would do a much longer outro here, but to be perfectly transparent, it is Sunday afternoon. Every Sunday I get up really early. I do some housework, laundry, that kind of stuff, and then I jump right into close horse. <laughs> you know, like editing and putting together an episode from beginning to end, is, is it's a full day of work. But I have to finish this up and transition into working on my day job work, which has been to be also even more transparent. It's been killing me lately. It's been a really hard time. There, has, there hasn't been a day off in a long time and my mental and physical health are suffering from the constant stress and long days. Like I can't remember the last time I didn't have a headache and a stomach ache in tandem. It's, it's rough right now. I'm trying to keep it together. Tell myself that things will be better after the holidays. But I'll say while I'm tired and I'm at times catatonic with despair and anxiety, I have found that Close Horse and our community has helped me cope and get some happy moments during all of this. So thank you so much for listening to me talk and therefore giving me a chance to work on something I love, especially in the midst of all of this. And I seriously feel like I'm going to cry. This is this is how important this is to me. I'm grateful for all of you. I logged into Apple Podcasts this morning to look for something regarding the department for Kim. And I was like, oh my God, so many people are listening to Close Horse now. Like, it's a real thing. Like, people care. Wow. Wow. You know, thank you. I don't know what I would do without all of you and your support and your encouragement and your cute cat photos. It means so much to me. And it's it's the fuel that keeps me going. And I know that people say stuff like that all the time, but wow. 
I really mean that. They probably all mean it too when they say it. Believe people when they say things like that to you. Okay, with all of that, I'll say thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even, if you have a few minutes, a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, tell your friends. Close Horse is a podcast built upon telling your friends and sharing our posts and all of those things. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. What a wildly magical thing. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. I also just wanted to remind you that my other podcast, The Department, is back. I co-host it with my friend Kim. She's also a career buyer, so we have a lot to talk about. And we discuss trends of all kinds, from fashion to food to social, and how they impact us and the world around us. To show all of you department listeners how happy we are to be back, we release two episodes in one week about holiday trends like Hallmark movies and those gross, supposedly gourmet, that's in quotes, gift baskets. You can find the department anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Instagram at at underscore the underscore department. All right, that's all I have for you. As always, we got to thank Dustin, my other half, for our music and audio support. Also just being like an amazing emotional support during a pretty tough time for me. So thank you, Dustin. Thank you to all of you. And I'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye.